Uh, you'll find it on page, I believe, 402, if you're looking at the Bible in the chair in front of you, Nehemiah chapter 7. People will come, Ray. People will come. They'll come from Iowa. Uh, they'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. Anybody name that movie? Feel the Dreams, that's right. Glad we got movie buffs in here. Feel the Dreams, the 1989 film starring Kevin Costner and Darth Vader, as well as Mufasa himself, James Earl Jones. Um, Field of Dreams, if you haven't seen it, Field of Dreams, picture this. It is a movie about a baseball field on a farm. Sounds exciting, right? I don't know if Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to be in this one. But here's the rub. This farm is struggling. The bank is knocking at the door. They're ready to foreclose the farm. And yet, this farmer stops farming. (laughs) This farmer destroys a sizable portion of his crop. And instead, this farmer spends time building a professional-level baseball field in the middle of his Iowa farm. Oh, but it gets even better. This farmer does all this because a ghost told him to do it. A ghost who promised, if you build it, they will come. And so Ray, the farmer, built it. And when he finishes, he stares at this empty field. And he claims to see old professional baseball players playing on this field. But slowly, other people start to see the same thing. These old-time professional players playing on this baseball diamond in the middle of Iowa. But it would all be for nothing if the people didn't show up and really pay to see the players play. Now, sure enough, this is kind of a spoiler alert, The last scene of the movie is a line of cars on the state highway outside of Ray's farm waiting to come to the field. I love that movie. It's a great story. Now, look at chapter 7, verse 1. It's on page 402. Chapter 7, verse 1. We saw this last week, too. Nehemiah finished the wall with all the other Israelites helping. They finished it. Now what? The work on the wall would be for nothing if there were no people to operate the wall. And when you think about what the walls were meant to do, they were meant to protect the people who lived in the city. And just like the field in Iowa would be a waste if no one came, so also the walls in Jerusalem would be a waste if nobody lived in Jerusalem. And so this is, in chapter 7 tells us that Nehemiah understands this. He understands that just because the walls were done didn't mean the work was finished. Walls aren't any good if you don't have people to run them. Neither are walls any good if you don't have people to fill them. And we can distill this further to a principle that Scripture makes clear over and over again. It doesn't matter if you have the external in place, if the internal is out of place. I think that's the main idea or principle we could take from this passage, this chapter in Nehemiah 7. Now this next phase of the work will focus on people. Chapter 7 covers three categories of people. People who ran the wall of the city, people who are in charge of the city, and people to fill the city. First, people who ran the wall of the city. I invite you to follow along as I read verses 1 to 4. 
Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. I think we can learn three different lessons from the people who ran the walls of the city. First lesson is that we need people behind the scenes. We need people behind the scenes. And we think about ourselves as Christ's people. None of Christ's people should crave the spotlight. Yeah, scripture says we are a boasting people. But it makes clear, we do not boast or brag about ourselves. It says, let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord. We are a boasting people, but we boast in our King, our King Jesus. So we are a boasting people. Yes, none of us should crave the spotlights. But some of us will have more of a public ministry than others. Some of us will just be more out in front than others. You think about Nehemiah's day. Not everybody could be Nehemiah. And you know what? That was a good thing. One commentator puts it like this. He says, dead walls without living watchmen are a poor defense. Nehemiah recognizes this as well. So he puts people in place to run the wall, and he instructs them how to run the wall. You can look at uh, his instructions in verses 4 to 5. Now, in verse 4, you can translate it either as, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, or let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened while the sun is hot. That's just kind of a minor detail. It seems like the original language and the cultural context of the day would favor the second option. Don't open it until the, uh, while the sun is hot. You know, this would have been the hottest point of the day. And just real practically, back then and at that time and place, this would have been the time when people took their midday siestas. So everybody would be sleeping. It would make no sense to keep the gate open while people were sleeping. And so Nehemiah gives them what seems like his basic common sense instructions. Don't have the door open when you're asleep. And then at night, when you leave your shift... Make sure the doors are locked as well. That's basically how he wraps it up. He gives them these instructions to people who work behind the scenes. And more than the details of the instructions, the point, the point we're trying to emphasize is that they needed people to do this. Even a simple task like this, like opening and closing the door, they needed people to do this. Nehemiah couldn't even do it all of himself. And so we think about the church. If the church will operate with unity, if the church is going to fulfill its mission with any kind of effectiveness, it will take all of her members working together. It will even take some of her members being willing to work behind the scenes. You think that's how deacons got started. You might know the story in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 tells us how the elders of the church couldn't meet all the physical needs of the widows of the church. And it got sticky because widows, there were widows who were both Jewish and Gentile. 
So there was some rumbling in the church that began. Some people started to float accusations against the elders saying, hey, you guys are playing favorites. You're favoriting one group over the other. Instead, the deacons. The deacons stepped in to meet the physical needs of the widows. They worked behind the scenes. And their behind-the-scenes work helped facilitate and keep the church united. It helped the church effectively fulfill her mission. We need people behind the scenes. And just take a moment here. Thank people who work behind the scenes who you might not know about. Ed Bruning, thank you, brother, for helping organize the welcome team. It's a small thing, but it's meaningful. Betty Lucas, thank you right now for keeping track of how many people are in the room. (laughs) And putting the slides together, doing communion cups. Betty does so much behind the scenes. Thank you, Sarah, and to all the musicians who work so hard to help lead us in worship through song. Thank you to so many others, uh, kids ministry volunteers who have care for our children. Thank you for that work behind the scenes. And just met the many other people who come week in, week out. And behind the scenes, real low key, are just a constant encouragement to others. We need people behind the scenes. It's just like Nehemiah's day. So from the people who ran the wall, this first group, we learn secondly, second lesson, that we need to build our work on worship. We need to build our work on worship. It says that Nehemiah appointed singers and Levites on wall duty. Now, Levites, they were the one tribe of Israel that was devoted to be priests. Um, So he appointed singers and Levites on wall duty. Now, my guess is that if you had to set up a security detail, let's say you were some famous celebrity or politician, and you had to set up a security detail, you'd probably go after to recruit the guy at the gym who could squat 500 pounds before you'd go to the local orchestra and pick out the oboe player to say, like, hey, you're going you're to head up this task force. And yet, the presence of singers and Levites on the walls reminds us of an important principle. You see, defending the walls was supposed to be like every other part of their lives. Like every other part of their lives, it was to be built upon worship. Even as they defended the walls, doing a menial task like this, they needed to remind themselves that they were doing this work unto the Lord. Even if they did their guard duty every day, they needed to remind themselves that they needed the Lord. Perhaps the singers and Levites would remind them of something like Psalm 127, verse 1, which we read earlier, which says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Beloved, do you work with worship as your foundation? Or do you just kind of phone it in day in, day out? I know it's really hard. Do you work with worship as your foundation? As you work, you should do it for the Lord. As you work, you should lean on the Lord. You know, the Israelites had these Levites and singers to remind them of this. I wonder what reminds you of this every day. Maybe you could take a notes from the singers, no pun intended. You could take a note, or pun kind of intended actually. You could take a note from the singers to remind yourself to have worship as your foundation of your work. Use music. I, don't, I mean, I hate getting a song stuck in my head, but you know what? Getting a good solid song stuck in your head, a good biblical song stuck in your head all day, boy, that's going to help keep worship as your foundation at work. Maybe that's just one little way to apply it. 
All right, these people who ran, who ran the wall, who did the behind-the-scenes work, the third lesson we learned from them is that we need to take ownership of the work. We need to take ownership of the work. Now, did you notice where Nehemiah stationed some of these guards? It's, really, it's a really small detail. He stationed some of these guards in front of their own homes, in front of their own homes. He reminded me uh, kind of the switch that happened for me when I became a homeowner. I couldn't give a rip about landscaping before I became a homeowner. <laughs> All of a sudden, now, when I, now that I own a home, like, I want my lawn to rival Augusta National Fairway, like, you know, where they play the Masters, a tradition unlike any other. You know, I want the uh, perfectly trimmed grass, very lush green. I want all those flowers to beautify it. Those flowers, you've got to make sure those are the flowers that the deer don't eat. Now I, and so Nehemiah understands that kind of dynamic would work with the people who lived in Jerusalem as well. He understands that if you live there, you're just going to care in a different way. And, and so that's why he, that's, those are the people he picks out. He doesn't hire outsiders. He picks people who lives there. Now, the defenses of the city, we think about it, the defenses of the city would be so much stronger if everybody defended themselves. And we think about this in the church. The Bible tells us to guard one another. We even include that in our church covenant. But the first way we guard others against sin is if we guard ourselves against our own sin. In other words, we can't be too busy focusing on the sins of other people and ignore the sins we commit ourselves. So we have to take ownership of the work. Now, those were the people who ran the walls, the people behind the scenes. And the ongoing work, though, Nehemiah understood that he needed another group of people. He needed other directors, organizers, other leaders. So he appoints two people who are in charge of the city. These guys named Hanani and Hananiah. And again, I think we can learn three lessons from this group. First, from the group who ran the city, we learn that we need more leaders. We need more leaders. Uh, Show of hands. Anybody here feel swamped at work or at school? Feel way stretched thin. All right, there's a lot of people here. Now, just for a minute, imagine the day-to-day of a guy like Moses. Moses, way back when, was in Exodus, came before Nehemiah. You might know the story. Moses, at the ripe age of 80, led the Israelites out of slavery from the superpower Egypt, you know, crossing the Red Sea, and then they end up in the wilderness. If you know, that's when the problems really got started. So Moses leads hundreds of thousands of people out into the wilderness. Now imagine being the guy who hundreds of thousands of people bring their problems to every day. You think you got it bad every day at work. And in steps Exodus 18. Exodus 18 tells us that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, gave Moses advice. Now, I don't know about you, most of us might tense up a bit if our in-laws came to us and say, here's what you need to do with your life. (laughs) But in this case, it was wise advice. Jethro told Moses, listen, Moses, you need other leaders beside you for your sanity and for the people's good. You got to get other guys to take up the work. That's exactly what Moses did. And so for Nehemiah, it's the same deal. Nehemiah knows he can't do everything. 
He needed other men to carry the load of leading the people. And the Bible carries this lesson all the way to the church age. And maybe just general principle for us. Do you have to do everything yourself or can you trust people enough to like delegate? It's why the New Testament advocates for churches to have multiple pastors, also known as elders. Some of these elders will give themselves especially to teaching and preaching, but all of them will share the same position. Elders will do the work of shepherding better together, having more hands for the task, having more wisdom collectively. Nehemiah knows. Nehemiah knows he can't do everything. And he knows also he's not going to be around forever. In fact, he promised the king that he would return to his cupbearer position when he was done with the work. So he needs other guys who are going to continue the work when he's gone. This is why the Apostle Paul stresses to his protégés, Timothy and Titus. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here at West Creek, we want to raise up leaders who can help us with the work, who can carry the load. We want to raise up the next generation who can continue the work when we're gone. Second, from the people who were in charge of the city, Hanani and Hananiah, we learned that we must value competence. We must value competence. I would just think about it. What got Hanani and Hananiah on Nehemiah's radar in the first place? What made Nehemiah notice them? Well, for Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, he was the one who traveled all the way to the Persian capital, Susa, in chapter 1 to tell Nehemiah about the sad state of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in trouble. And so maybe Nehemiah recognizes Hanani's forethought. Because maybe Hanani was like, God could use Nehemiah in a special way here. God could use Nehemiah's position as the cupbearer, having the king's ear to help out the city of Jerusalem. So Hanani had an important quality. He was competent in forethought and leadership. But then this Hananiah, the other leader, it says he was the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. Now this castle was more like a fortress at the northwest part of the city. And the point is that Hananiah had proven leadership experience. He would be competent for the job. Now, let's just get something clear, nuance, qualify it. Competence is not the most important quality in leadership. It's not even the most important quality in these leaders. But it is one important quality. And we shouldn't take it for granted. It seems like more people today care about your position and posturing more than they care about actually being good at your job. To quote one columnist, he writes this, In our polarized times, we often elevate identity and ideology over simple competence. The presence of the initial R or D by a politician's name matters far, far more to people than the answer to the simple question, is he or she competent enough to do the job? Jesus, friends, desires shepherds after his own heart. And you read the Gospels, and you will find Jesus is very, very competent to handle the Scriptures. In fact, the Bible just poured out of Jesus. He not only knew it, 
He knew how to use it. He applied it to himself. We need leaders who are competent with God's word, not just who have a profe- uh, fancy uh, financial portfolio, not just who, who know all the batting averages of the sports teams. We need leaders who are competent with God's words, who know it, who are able to handle it, who are able to defend it, explain it, and who live it. We must value competence. Third, from this group of people who were in charge of the city, these two men, Hanani and Hananiah, third lesson, we must value character. We must value character. Nehemiah says that Hanani and Hananiah were faithful and God-fearing. We just consider the task in front of these men. What if these qualities were not in place? What if they were not faithful or God-fearing? What has Nehemiah dealt with so far? He's dealt with this nagging uh, opposers of these influential men, the entire wall project. And the end of chapter 6, if you look back, it makes clear that these opposers aren't going away anytime soon. People are going to keep chirping. If Hanani and Hananiah were not faithful, if they did not fear God, then they would cave under pressure. They may give in to the opposers' demands, or maybe they might just bend to them slightly. Hanani and Hananiah had to commit first to pleasing God, not people. They had to commit first to lift up God's name, not their own. Friends, the church needs to value character more, especially in her leaders. Competence is important, but if you don't have character, competence means nothing. And I think we can actually take it a step further. If a leader in the church does not have character, then he is actually incompetent for the job. A recent podcast has chronicled the rise and fall of a prominent church in Seattle, Washington. And one of the central takeaways is that the lead pastor's giftedness outpaced his character. People turned a blind eye to his sin because of how good of a preacher he is. They lived with the antics because of the results that came. How many times have we seen that same exact story unfold? And friends, how did Jesus tell us to discern between true and false teachers? Did he tell us, you know who's a true and false teacher? You got to look by how many cheeks they put in the seats. That's how you tell. No. He said you will know them by their fruits. He said you will know them by their fruits. Paul warned Timothy that there would come a day when people will not endure sound teaching, but will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So friends, we think about us, we want to reach as many people as we can, But we can't reach people and throw away our character. We have to be faithful to the word. We have to aim to please God before we aim to please people. And if character is not in place, we will compromise under pressure or we will bend to achieve success. These are the people who ran the city. Just in light of this second group uh, who are running uh, the walls of Jerusalem, Hanani and Hananiah, we should say to ourselves, we should pray and work that all of us here are competent in the scriptures and have the godly character that results. This is what God saved us for. He saved us to know him, and we know him through his word. He saved us to live like him, to be holy as he is holy. So if you ever struggle to know what to pray for about, for yourself or what to pray for your church, here's an idea. Pray, God, 
Help us to know you in your word. And as a result, help us to live like you. In light of the people who ran the city, I want to get a little more specific. The Bible establishes that God's people always need more faithful leaders. And we say the same at West Creek. We want to see more men who are qualified to serve as an elder. Some of that, I know, is on the current leadership. We have to invest. We have to take initiative. We have to seek to raise up brothers who can come alongside us or even brothers who can take our place. So, fellow elders, this is a word to us. This is a challenge. But some of that is on the men here also. This week, there was a family from church who needed, a, who needed help to move some heavy things, move a refrigerator. And I love that I could reach out to many different brothers from church who have stepped up for us over and over again. I thank God for the culture of service he has raised up here. But what we long to see, what we pray for, is for more and more guys who are well-versed in the scriptures, who know their Bibles, and who know and love the God of the Bible. We want to see holy, happy, and humble ambition. Ambition to grow. Ambition even to be qualified to serve as an elder. So brothers, where are the Hananis and the Hananias among us? Now, if you haven't noticed, we've covered two groups of people, and we still have 68 verses to cover. (laughs) I hope you packed your lunch. We'll we'll wrap up soon. You'll notice that in verse 5, that Nehemiah explains what he is about to write. Uh, He's about to write people who are qualified to fill the city. Nehemiah finds a genealogy that Ezra put together around 13 years earlier. This same genealogy appears in Ezra chapter 2. I just thought, here it is. This is biblical proof that somebody was excited to find a big, long list of names in the Bible. Nehemiah was. He was a great guy. He's, so here's his people to fill the city. There are three more takeaways we can have from this genealogy and how Nehemiah used it. First is that we need to believe God's promises. Nehemiah shows us we need to believe God's promises. That's just doing some uh, background work here, just picking it apart. What made Nehemiah want to put, a, put together a genealogy in the first place? It was more than just a curious sh- search for his heritage and he just plugged in his data on Ancestry.com. <laughs> in verse 4, Nehemiah talks about the situation that Jerusalem was in. He says the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. In other words, they had plenty of room. They had these big walls, but hardly anybody lived there. And so people must have looked at Nehemiah when he went back to Jerusalem, like they looked at Ray from Field of Dreams. Why would he leave this cushy job as the king's cupbearer to help a rundown city where nobody wanted to live? Why on earth would he do that? Well, it must have been because Nehemiah believed God's promises. Perhaps Nehemiah believed the promise of a verse like Zechariah 8, verse 3, which says, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. He believed that God would establish his name again in Jerusalem, so he moved back, even though it was run down. Today, 
Why would anyone else go out into the world and move to places of need? Why would people move to places where there are hardly any, if at all, gospel preaching churches? It's because they believe God's promises. They believe that the scene from Revelation 5 that we read earlier will one day come to fruition. That Christ has saved people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And that those people will be gathered around his throne one day. That's why they moved there. That's why the young couple, Paul and Sarah Morrison, moved to Parma, Ohio some six years ago. They saw a need and believed that God has people in this city. I wonder for the rest of us, have you included this factor in deciding where you live? I know it's a big decision. In good schools and a safe neighborhood, they're not bad things. But what about where there's need? And for us, this is where we gather. What about moving to the Parma area? What about moving overseas? Is that just for the superheroes? I don't want to place any unnecessary guilt on anybody. Just get us thinking, are we taking God's promises seriously? Notice Nehemiah's closeness with God in verse 5. He says, my God put it in my heart. Are you close enough with the Lord that you savor to call him my God, my Father? If you're like me, then one of the regular prayer requests you have is for guidance. Pray that God would guide me. But here's something we should consider. Not just to ask for guidance, but to ask ourselves, are we guidable? Are we guidable? Are we actually close enough to the Lord, steeped in his word, walking in delighted obedience to know his will? Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was close to the Lord. This closeness must have bolstered his faith in God to keep his promises. And consider also what God called him to do. He said, Nehemiah, put a genealogy together. All right, so nobody lives in Jerusalem. Step one is to find out everybody that could live in Jerusalem. And as Nehemiah finds Ezra's genealogy, think of what an encouragement this must have been. These numbers could have reminded Nehemiah of how far God had brought Israel. How far God had brought them in just a short amount of time. They had rebuilt the temple. They had begun to settle back in their homes. Friends, when you look back at God's faithfulness, it will always increase your faith for God to keep his promises. This genealogy shows us that we need to rest in God's care. Second lesson, we need to rest in God's care. It's a long list of names and numbers. It ranges from leaders uh, of households to workers in the temple. And just a quick footnote on the numbers in this genealogy. When you compare the numbers here with the numbers in Ezra chapter 2, you'll notice some discrepancies, some differences in the numbers, even though it's the same list. Now, this might raise some antennas for some of us. And I noticed this at Old Oak when we were in the book of Ezra. And I'll repeat what I said then. These discrepancies or differences... Friends, they have no major effect on the actual message of this passage. These are minor details. And second, these differences are likely due to the errors of those who copied down this book. Understanding and reproducing numerical lists was especially difficult. And so friends, tossing out the Bible because of the errors of copiers, as one author puts it, it would be as silly as receiving a written message from someone you trust warning you about a nuclear attack 
and rejecting that message because the word nuclear is misspelled? Would you risk getting nuked because of a spelling error? The point of this list is more than the numbers, though. You think about it, Nehemiah could have saved us a bunch of time. He could have even saved a bunch of ink if he just summarized. Chapter 7 could have been a heck of a lot shorter. You know, if I was writing it, I would have been like, Ezra already listed a bunch of people who came back. The end. (laughs) But to quote this entire genealogy again would remind them of something important. It would remind them that God saved a group of people. And in this group of people were actual individuals. People who have names and homes and families. Listing out all these names and numbers reminds us of God's care. His care is not sloppy and vague. His care is deliberate and personal. Jesus knows his sheep by name. Every genealogy in the Bible should remind us of that sweet truth. So believer in Jesus, rest in your father's personal care for you. Let even what we would call a boring list remind you he knows your name. Third, this genealogy reminds us that we need to embrace God's grace. We need to embrace God's grace. Nehemiah, he's attempting to figure out everybody who is qualified to live in Jerusalem. He's going to prepare for the beginning of chapter 11 when they will draft one of ten people to move to Jerusalem. But here, as Ezra discovered, there were some people who couldn't prove they were truly among God's people. Specifically, there's this group in verse 63. There are some guys who wanted to be priests, but they couldn't prove that they came from the line of priests. And so in order to determine whether or not these guys were lying, the Israelites had to consult the Lord through what was Urim and Thummim. These were little stones that were kept in the high priest's breastplate through which God would help them make decisions. Sounds pretty strange, I know. Now this group who couldn't prove they were qualified to belong, this group who couldn't prove they were qualified to belong, they should remind us of us. Should remind us that none of us are qualified to belong to God's people. Like them, we need help from outside of ourselves. In our case, it is Jesus. He is the true and final great high priest. Through his sinless life and sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus qualifies us to be, to be part of the people of God. Colossians 1 verse 12 says, to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us through the work of his Son to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Yes, friends, let even what we would call a boring list remind you that by God's grace in Christ, you belong to God's people. And as we embrace God's grace, we too will give to God's work just like how the chapter closes. So friends, where have we been? Just a quick review of the big picture. God set up more than God set in place more than a new set of walls. He called his people to the mission of working for his kingdom. This would require people to run the walls of the city. It would require people to run the city itself, and it would require people to fill the city. He needed more than just walls. He needed people. 
Nehemiah didn't let the external wall keep him from attending to the ongoing internal work. That is a lesson for all of us here. Brother and sister in Christ, have you settled for external appearances in your life? It's so easy to play church. It's so easy to put on an act for appearances. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Brother and sister, beware of only making the external look good while you neglect your internal relationship with the Lord. But here, this is also an invitation, brothers and sisters. You do not have to mask the mess and pain you feel internally. You do not have to mask that simply by putting on a smiling face externally. Maybe you don't want to deal with your hidden sin. Maybe you are ashamed to deal with the pain that you face. Please walk in the light. Attend to the internal, your heart, not just the external. We want to do what we can to help you with this. Friend, if you do not trust Jesus, you're here today. Thank you for being here. Let me ask you, are you too wrapped up in the externals of your life? You know, you probably know this. You probably can take a guess, but God sees more than the Facebook and Instagram versions of our lives. So here's homework for you. Read Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27 this afternoon. And find a man who rested on the external version of himself but never considered what was actually in his heart. Never considered what he loved the most inside. The truth is, friend, we are all messed up and sinful on the inside. We just have a good way to distract ourselves. Trust in Jesus to pay for your sin, to forgive your sin, and follow him. Church, we cannot let the external operations of buildings and programs and traditions keep us from the true internal heart of our calling. We want to take good care of what we have. We want to be diligent in planning. But we have to prioritize love of God and love for one another. And further, like Nehemiah, we must take care not to think that our work is finished when the external is in place. We'll close it with this. Matthew Henry summed it up well. The safety of the city depended on the number and valor of its inhabitants more than upon the height and strength of the walls. The health of the church is not first the beauty and size of its building. It's not even first in how big of a crowd that she can draw. The health of the church is the people whom God has redeemed in Christ and who is growing in Christ. The health of the church is internal, not external. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are worthy of all of our hearts, all that we desire, all that we seek and pursue, all that we love. You are worth being first. And so often, God, we are idolaters and we are prideful we put other things and we put ourselves first and not you. Jesus, we thank you that you lived the life that we didn't. Always putting God the Father first and yet you paid the death, you paid the penalty we deserved. 
So, Lord Jesus, we cling to you and we ask your help as we attend to our hearts this internal work. We commit this in your name. Amen.